Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network podcast on animal studies. I'm Akash Andachi, host of the channel, and I'm joined today by Professor Andrew Robichaud, who will speak about his book, Animal City, The Domestication of America, published by Harvard University Press in 2019. Professor Robichaud is Assistant Professor of History at Boston University, and his research areas include American history, environmental history, urban history, animal history, and the history of Boston. Dr. Robichaud, it's a pleasure. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Akash. It's a pleasure to be with you. In addition to providing extensive research into human-animal interactions in 19th century America, this book, as the title suggests, is also a study of the city and of urban environments. And there are wonderful passages describing the everyday character of American cities, their noises and smells, and the various animals they housed. I wondered if you might begin by explaining why you chose to focus on urban animals and how you came to choose New York and San Francisco specifically. Yeah, well, um, this project uh, emerged um, when I was in graduate school. Um, I didn't know that I was going to study animals in history, uh, but I had been interested in animals for a long time. I had been interested in questions of animal welfare and animal rights. Um, but when I came to graduate school, I thought that I would be studying something else and writing a dissertation about something else. This book is an outgrowth of the dissertation that I did write. Um, and at some point in the beginning of graduate school where you're reading and reading and reading, um, in preparation for oral exams, um, I came across a number of these sort of histories of animals in cities in the 1800s. Um, in particular, there's passages from um, an environmental historian named Theodore Steinberg, um, who talks about pigs in New York City in the 1800s. Um, And there had been a couple books that were written on horses in cities in the 1800s. And for me, it it just sort of caught my imagination. It caught my interest. Um, And I thought, wow, this is a really interesting world. Um, And I wanted to kind of know more about this world. I wanted to sort of spend time in this world. I wanted to walk the streets. I wanted to walk the alleyways and peer into the backyards um, and walk the, you know, walk the areas of the slaughterhouses and the, um, and the uh, hog ranches um, that were really embedded in these cities in the 1800s. And so I think a big part of my focus for wanting to write a book like this was to try to recover this history in a way that I hadn't seen done by other historians, that there was this gap in our historical understanding and how we imagined these places, how we thought about this past, um, in particularly 19th century American cities. And wanting to spend time there and to to feel what those places were like. Um, And then to also sort of think about the question of, of what changed, what happened. What happened from 1840 when Charles Dickens comes to Manhattan and can't stop talking about the pigs that are wandering around Manhattan um, to really the modern city in the turn of the century, early 1900s, when a lot of this agriculture, a lot of these domestic animals that are used for food are largely invisible from down, uh, largely invisible to downtowns um, in that later period. And so there was both this sort of curiosity and wanting to recover this lost history um, of of the city streets and people's homes and people's ways of life. Um, And then also sort of this mystery of what happened. Um, So that's sort of how I got interested in the topic. Um, And in terms of, you know, how to pick which cities, this is a really challenging uh, sort of question for a historian is what is, what are your case studies? What are your examples? Um, and it wasn't easy to decide. Um, I do end up using a lot of cases from San Francisco and New York, 
Um, but I also didn't want it to be limited as a regional study. I wanted it. I wanted to talk about what are really large-scale changes that are happening across American cities over the course of the 1800s and early 1900s. Um, so I use case studies for those cities, but really it's about more than that because um, uh, a lot of American cities and, and cities internationally, in Europe especially, are dealing with very similar kinds of questions and issues around what to do with animal populations in cities, domestic animals, pigs, cows, chickens, horses, sheep, um, and then also the development of um, what we think of as sort of pets, a culture of pet ownership and pet keeping, pets in the home, and zoos. And so I wanted to kind of talk in, in sort of very big terms about this, what I see as this really important transformation that's happening in the 19th century in the city in particular, but which really is um, in many ways uh, kind of a, a way of thinking about the development of modern landscapes of human and animal interactions, um, in addition to a way of thinking about the development of cities. Yeah, definitely. It's th Thanks for explaining that. It's a book that really does position you you know, on, on the street level. And I thought we could perhaps build on the theme of the urban setting for a moment and explore the role of geography and the environment uh, in greater detail. Uh, the case of San Francisco, um, I believe, highlights this as the infrastructure of Butcher Town seems to be made with an awareness of the natural geography of the bay. And furthermore, the establishment of meat production there impacts local wildlife and in turn those who hunted the latter. Um, so could you speak to the environmental angle you employed in your study and perhaps also discuss what nature meant to contemporary reformers uh, that, that you discuss, such as Robert Hartley, for instance? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, this, there, there is a lot of environmental history in this book. Um, you know, it's kind of an interdisciplinary study in a lot of ways, but my home is really environmental. And you picked up on that and in, in sort of thinking about um, th that question of uh, butcher town. So for those who haven't read the book, Butcher Town is this slaughterhouse reservation district that um, the city of San Francisco creates in 1870. And it's part of a larger story in that city of how regulations um, are, are sort of regulating, how, how public policy is regulating um, the presence of both um, domestic animals and also slaughter. Um, and so this process of moving slaughterhouses and, and moving stockyards to certain parts of the city or outside of the city altogether is really a regulatory story in a lot of ways. Um, and so I wanted to uncover that story. And it does get into some really interesting environmental history grounds um, because it also, the regulations reveal the ways in which people in the 19th century are thinking about these environments and thinking about urban environments in really interesting ways. Um, so in the case of um, Butchertown, San Francisco, uh, there are all these debates and discussions about what do we do with the slaughterhouses? What do we do with the stockyards and the hog ranches, as they're called? Um, and it's not just about moving them out of the city altogether. It's about finding the right spot for them. It's about finding a spot that's going to create a sustainable, long-term uh, relationship with the environment in the minds of the, of the people who are uh, embracing this reform. And so what are they thinking about? Well, they're thinking about how do we use this environment to mitigate the noxious effects of these industries. And in particular, they look to the use of the San Francisco Bay, the, the flow of water, brackish water. Um, and they also look to wind, uh, prevailing wind currents um, to, to site these new places. And what they say is that by siting it uh, on the eastern, southeastern part of the city, what will happen is that the, the fumes from these noxious trades, these slaughterhouses, will actually just you know, be blown up over the San Francisco Bay. They'll dissipate. They won't harm anybody. And it gets at these, you know, a lot of these ideas in the 19th century that smell is something that's really dangerous to human bodies. Smell will make you sick, miasmas. Um, and, uh, and then also this idea that you have the tides coming in twice a day to wash things out. Now, of course, this, the, this vision of sort of this perfect environment for 
noxious trades um, really falls short. Um, very quickly, Butcher Town sort of outgrows its environment. And by you know, seven or eight years in to this experiment, um, it's once again this really sort of toxic zone. It smells terrible. There's blood in the water. And as you said, Akash, there's, um, it affects all this other wildlife in the area. And so you know, there are reports of um, these massive populations of gulls that, um, that live and feed off of the waste in Butchertown. So not to get too graphic, but in Butchertown, the, the slaughterhouses were built actually on piers over the bay. So the, the slaughterhouse waste, the offal, the blood would fall into the water and it would you know, supposedly be washed away. And what ends up happening is all these gulls sort of congregate to eat this, um, this food. And there's this massive amount of energy that's flowing through this um, particular area. Um, and so um, I, always, uh, I always think, too, about um, there, there still are these massive populations of gulls in San Francisco. I lived in San Francisco for um, several years. And if anyone's been to a San Francisco Giants game, um, baseball game, somewhere around the seventh or eighth inning of the game, you have these gulls that start to circle the stadium and move in to eat all the leftover food. And I sort of wonder if these are sort of the, the, the gulls that were once feeding on Butchertown. Um, and so there's, there's so, so, you know, whenever you have this sort of massive input of, of new food, um, you had this new sort of ecosystem emerge. And we see it with other things too. There are um, there are lots of dogs in this area. There's a part of Butcher Town that's called Dog Patch, which is right next to Butcher Town. And I haven't been able to get a good history of the of that name. Um, but there certainly were reports in the 1800s of these large populations of dogs. And whether these dogs were wild or semi-wild or semi-domesticated, um, it's hard to read from the sources because uh, a lot of the observers of these dogs call them curs, they call them street dogs, um, uh, but they also um, seem to be keeping company with the slaughterhouse workers too. So um, they could have been sort of these semi-domestic kind of creatures. Um, and then you see these transformations ripple out um, once, the, once San Francisco decides to devote this part of the city to this sort of sacrifice zone, this noxious trade zone. Um, it... it um, it affects this other part of uh, this sort of inland waterway um, that was home to a lot of wild birds, uh, wild birds that were uh, hunted for recreation, for sport. And that, that sport goes away. Those birds disappear. And as a historian, you know, you can't, um, you can't always get the best picture of causation. Um, but the fact that that um, creek, that Islaus Creek Bay, it's really more like a bay, um, becomes so polluted with butcher town waste and with other waste um, from animal industries and, and eventually from uh, human waste. Um, the fact that that is happening and then the birds are disappearing is a pretty good, um, a pretty good connection um, that, that, that's really sort of speaking to both the, the specific um, and massive transformations ecologically that are happening at the time. And then there's, of course, this long legacy that, um, of these spaces that I talk about in the book as well, which we can talk about later perhaps. But you also asked about Robert Hartley. Um, and Robert Hartley was a milk, uh, I guess he was a milk reformer in the 1830s and 1840s in New York. New York had this massive, what was called the swill dairy industry. Um, and this was essentially these, um, these oversized barns that were like feedlots. Um, and instead of, you know, feedlot, you know, get, you know, feeding animals corn, um, they would pipe in distillery mash. And so these, these feedlots were connected to alcohol production, whiskey production in particular. Um, and this, this was a massive industry. Some of these barns had 500 to 2,000 cows living in them. The cows were brutally treated, like pretty, really sick by, by many accounts. Um, and what was really forcing people to think critically about them was that um, there was 
apparently, you know, by the statistics that were being kept at the time, a spike in infant mortality. And that spike is, was associated at the time with bad milk. And so children are dying in Manhattan and reformers like Robert Hartley are looking at, um, at the dairies and they're looking at the cows that are living in those dairies and they're saying, hey, this is where the problem is. These cows are sick and they are producing bad milk for the city and they're killing the children. Um, and so Hartley is part of this massive campaign, um, which is uh, moderately successful. Um, I wouldn't say it's all that successful in his time, um, to target these swill milk industries. Um, and, and one of the chapters, I really go into how he's thinking about the city and the country and thinking about ideas of health in the country and ideas of cont- contamination and ill health in the city. Um, and um, uh, Hartley is interested in milk in part because he's, he's a temperance reformer. And so for him, he's, you know, he's this deeply religious, uh, I think, Presbyterian um, uh, thinker and activist. Um, he is involved in, you know, he's a leader in the New York Temperance Society. He, I think, goes on to establish the New York Association for the Improving, Improvement of the Condition of the Poor um, in the 1830s and 1840s, which is this big sort of benevolent organization. And so he is this super activist in New York City in a time when there's what one historian um, has called this sort of sisterhood of reforms that are emerging, um, these sort of extra-governmental um, activist groups that are um, you know, very Christian and very, um, and very concerned in this sort of holistic way of, of trying to improve society. And so he is sort of looking at all of these different features, and what he sees is that not only is the milk not only is the milk killing children, which is horrible, but it's also creating all of this inexpensive alcohol. Because without the swill, without, without being able to dispose of the swill and make milk out of it, um, the whiskey producers would be losing money. And so that their small profit margins are coming from their capacity to turn that waste product into milk and therefore create cheaper alcohol. And so there's this sort of network of, of thinking um, of, in this a ca- sort of emerging capitalist economy um, of you know, how, you know, h- how do reformers tackle this network of problems. And, so, and for him, he, t- he takes it back to the cows and he wants to put the cows in the country. He wants them to be out in the country and he thinks if they're out in the country, they'll be producing milk. Um, that is pure, that is good, that is healthy, and that the, that the health of the country will literally sort of flow into the city through milk. Um, and it doesn't really work out that way, in part because the country milk producers are um, really adopting some of these, what, we, what, what he thought of as sort of urban techniques, these feedlots. Um, and, and, and the country cows are, are also in many cases, sick and stabled um, <clears throat> very, very closely together. And then, the, and then they have to transport the milk to the city, which they didn't understand at that time um, could cause a lot of bacterial contamination. Um, so I've gone on a, 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 a while there about Hartley, but um, uh, I don't know if, and I don't know if you're, I answered your question exactly, but. Oh, it was, yeah. it was great. Yeah. And I, I think that speaking of the reformers and, and their aspirations kind of ties into uh, a word you use throughout the book, which is the inconveniences uh, posed by um, certain animals to urban life. And you just discussed noxious fumes and blood in the water and street animals. And um, in, in trying to remedy these inconveniences, um, both contemporary reformers and administrators uh, had to deal with the legal and economic position of animals in American cities. And, and you yeah. discuss this in the book. So I, I wonder if you could perhaps elaborate on on what those legal and, and, and economic positions were, and, and also perhaps the transition at this time uh, from animal labor towards machine power by the mm. end of the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, in terms of, you know, thinking about the centrality of animal labor. Um, 
you know, it, it's sort of hard to it's sort of hard to fully imagine how how central animals were. Um, you know, there we're talking about cities with tens of thousands of horses. Um, and in terms of thinking about the transition between different power systems, um, you know, this was not a successional system of moving from, you know, horses to railroads to automobiles to, you know, one thing after another. This was all sort of coming up together in, in a lot of ways. And so in the case of horses, which is really the main source of power, or one of the main sources of power in the 19th century, um, for moving goods, um, you know, you, you have this massive growth of horses alongside the development of railroads. And so cities are getting railroads in 18, as early as 1830s, 1840s, 1850s. And certainly in the second half of the 19th century, things really come into rail in a big way. Um, but once you get those goods to, you know, urban depots, then you need horses to get them from the depots to the warehouses, from the warehouses to the stores. Um, you have expanding geographies of cities at this time, and horses are really stitching the, these urban geographies together. And so this is work that other scholars have done in, in looking at the rise of horse populations in the you know, second half of the 19th century um, per capita. Um, the horse populations take off because they are literally sort of you know, holding these cities together. Um, but horses, but, um, there are other, there are animals that are doing other kinds of work too. Um, you have pigs in Manhattan, as I mentioned, who are trash, collecting trash. Um, you have, uh, cows in these swill stables who are processing waste and who are producing milk. Um, the pigs are also producing meat, if you will. That's a kind of labor moving around, eating food. Um, and so, um, and then you also have um, you also have dogs that are doing work too. You have um, dogs who are protecting property, um, and as I talk about in the books, you if I talk about in the book too, um, in chapter five, um, you have dogs that are working, um, working in in really important ways in nineteenth century American life in cities in particular. Uh, there's this huge push to put dogs in machines at this time, um, not just in cities. This, is, this was a big, uh, a big practice in large dairying uh, regions, so upstate New York along the Hudson River, um, where all of a sudden these farms are producing uh, butter for urban markets. They're specializing in butter. And these farms that would once sort of produce a range of different uh, products um, where churning butter was sort of one task in the midst of a day um, are now sort of churning butter all day long. And churning butter in the 19th century was, and, and before the 19th century, was considered um, in many cases women's work. This was a task that women did. Um, and so all of a sudden you have these bigger farms and you have this greater labor needed to churn butter. And, um, and you also have this sort of ideal of uh, this middle class, upper middle class ideal of um, women not working or, or working less. Um, and so who's going to replace female labor? It's the dog. And the dog holds all this promise in terms of um, churning butter for this economy. And um, it, if you see the book, there are all these uh, pictures of these dog machines, um, which were in wide use in large, da in large dairies. Um, and then also dogs, dogs also do the work of pulling carts through cities, um, carts of rag pickers in particular. The rag pickers in New York were sort of this population. At first, they were largely German immigrants um, who wander the streets and essentially are gathering up trash and pieces of cloth and bone and metal that they can resell in this sort of recycling economy that exists. Um, and, and what do they use to pull their carts? They use dogs. Um, and, and dogs are, um, they're able to protect the carts as well as move them. And there's some descriptions of the fact that these dogs are, are smart, you know, that they, they have this capacity to interact with people 
in a way and to take commands in a way that allow the rag pickers to kind of make their way down a street or down an alleyway and to give commands to the dogs to advance alongside of them. So they don't, they don't have to keep going back to the cart. Um, and this is a practice that um, gets eliminated in the 19th century. In part, it's eliminated um, because the SPCA, which is another big organization that emerges in the 1800s, um, decides that this is not an appropriate use for dogs. Um, and so I guess this gets at the second part of your question, which I think was about questions of legality, legal status of animals. Um, yes. and, and that's changing radically in the 19th century as well. Um, cities, and again, cities are a big part of that change. The biggest thing is really the establishment of these societies for the prevention of cruelty to animals. And it's easy to kind of put them all in, in this one blanket of SPCAs, um, but they're actually each individual organizations, each city, um, and they, they really do start largely in cities. First one is in New York City. They call themselves the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, even though their jurisdiction doesn't expand beyond Manhattan, I think, at the time. Um, but there's very quickly this expansion of these organizations of this name, uh, ASP, SPCAs, um, that are really, when we think about SPCAs now, you know, I think we tend to think of animal hospitals or adoption centers, uh, advocacy groups, sort of uh, membership organizations. Um, not to say that they're not powerful, but in the 19th century, they had a very distinctive power, which is that they were a police force. They were a corporation that was given really, really widespread power by the state to enforce these, these animal welfare laws. Um, and so it's not that there were no animal protection laws prior to the 1860s and prior to the SPCAs in the United States, but it's, there is this rewriting of animal laws um, that is more animal-centric than, than the previous laws were. Um, but are also more specific in, in general. They're more specific about what you can and can't do to certain animals. And then they also uh, create this enforcement apparatus to enforce, to, to, to enforce the laws. Um, the way that the San Francisco SPCA worked was that they could um, deputize officers to make arrests. They had special access to courts. And so, and, and they also got uh, one half, I believe, of the fine that was assessed on anyone who was found guilty of, a, of, of an abuse. So if somebody was found beating a horse, um, the SPCA would take them to court. The court would assess a fine of $20. The SPCA would get $10 of that. And so, um, and so there's really this, this sort of really powerful enforcement mechanism that gets uh, that emerges in the 1860s and 1870s across American cities in the form of the SPCA. Um, and, um, and, you know, I think, I, I, mean, I think when we talk about what is state, what is the state, what is governance, an organization like the SPCA sort of slips under the radar. Um, but this was a major sort of public intervention into you know, what was often seen as private, a, a private affair, private property um, on behalf of animals. And these, these are very active organizations. I mean, SPCA, the San Francisco chapter alone is, is prosecuting hundreds or more than a thousand cases a year um, and uh, of all different kinds, but increasingly they're really focusing on the abuse of horses in part because that's, what, that's what's left after a while. Yeah. Yeah. The place of horses and dogs in cities, as, as you just discussed, and, and the, the whole section on, on dogs and, and dog labor was really fascinating. Um, but these two animals uh, seem to take a certain, not, not a, perhaps a place of privilege, but they ascend in the urban hierarchy of animals. And I've always been interested in, in animal hierarchies and why certain animals are, are placed over others. And um and also, you know, there, there are these examples where, for instance, when you discuss the San Francisco SPCA and how the geographic proximity uh, afforded different animals different protections. Uh, and, and you quote Orwell 
and noting that some animals became more equal than others. <laughs> so, so this is all to say, I, I mean, I wonder if you could touch on some of these animal hierarchies and, and the priorities that the, the privilege or the preference afforded to some over others. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and it's a question that I guess is sort of implicit in, in the work, but I haven't really written through it or, or thought through it in, entirely. Um, and the Orwell quote was mostly for, for, uh, for fun because it just seemed like it fit so perfectly there. Um, but yeah, they're, they're, I mean, they're, it was really interesting to read about these reformers in the 1800s, these animal welfare reformers in the 1800s, and how they thought about which animals to give priority to. Because they're sort of, walk, you know, they're walking into these cities that have, by what we would think today, to just be so many suffering animals. Um, and they, they see that, they see that as well. Um, and what was interesting to me is that I was, I think I was expecting, um, I was expecting to see right off the bat that they cared more about horses and dogs, um, and that they really targeted those, those creatures. And what I found in my research was that sort of the opposite was true, that when these organizations were started, they, you know, especially looking at the development in New York and San Francisco, the initial sort of five years or so was really, really concerned with um, animals that were used for food and animals that were, you know, that were in city streets or um, that, were, that there was visible suffering. Um, and so it's, it's about the animals, but we'll talk about, I'm, I'm sure it's, it's also about the, the people and what do people, uh, what do people see and not see what's appropriate to be part of the visible city. Um, and so Henry Berg for, you know, thinking, thinking about this question of hierarchy, Henry Berg, uh, is the president of the ASPCA in New York, and he's actually really, I'd say, preoccupied in, in his early years with with the less charismatic creatures in the city. Um, one of his first big campaigns is to um, improve the lives of turtles. Um, turtles are, I can't remember the exact number, something like 300,000 turtles get imported into New York each year. And um, the way that they imported them was that the, the, they'd catch them, and I, I can't remember exactly where they caught them, somewhere down in, in, in the tropics, and they would bring them up alive um, to New York where they would you know, be put into soup or you know, whatever the recipe was, um, and, and they would string them together on their backs um, so that they, you know, they wouldn't, you know, so they wouldn't crawl around. And so they would be alive and sort of flailing around on their backs for, for, um, for a long period of time before they made it to market. And Berg was, was incensed by this and he wanted to put an end to this trade. Um, and he in fact said, you know, the horse and the dog, they already enjoy some protections because they're loved by people. The turtle is not loved. And so they're, they're aware of these hierarchies too, in interesting ways. Um, and so there, is, but there is this distinction between the lower creatures and sort of the higher creatures, the, you know, the dog and the horse, which have been bred and rebred and, and finely bred for, for centuries. Um, and, um, and sort of the, the, the less, um, the less, the, the, you know, the lower order creatures that are thought to be less intelligent or less refined, um, there does end up being sort of more attention to, to, those, to those animals. Berg really, um, his example is not necessarily emblematic of what happens to the organization. Um, but each of these SPCAs has their sort of origin story. Um, in Boston, it was this 40-mile horse race in which a horse died. In San Francisco, it was um, a banker who observed a hog being, draw, being dragged over cobblestones in downtown San Francisco. Um, and, and a lot of those origin stories actually do have to do with animals that are used for food. 
and so you know one of the things that you're seeing and that is sort of a part part of the book is that these sort of these sort of hierarchies get inscribed onto space and urban space in particular and so you have um you have the pushing out of um animals that are used for food who aren't generally treated as well as the uh as the pet in the home um so um you know i don't i'm not sure I'm not sure I have any profound thoughts about the, you know, the the history of the hierarchies and how they're being formed right now. But it certainly is an issue that people are working through in the 19th century, um, sometimes in surprising ways. Yeah, I I think it comes through in the book often. I was noticing these these great examples of, of just, you know, how certain animals are treated and why. Um, but you know, maybe maybe we should now turn to the people um, and the, the humans in the story. Um, they have their own hierarchies. And in San Francisco and New York, there are examples of how an individual's ethnic background or community or class or gender helped determine their relationship to animals. And among others, there's discussion of of Irish immigrants and Chinese duck farmers and African-American communities. And and you previously already mentioned uh, German rag pickers. Um, So uh, could you maybe speak to some of these human hierarchies, uh, these social hierarchies and how they were maybe reflected in animal policies, yeah, um, absolutely. This, um, you know, there is, as I've said, this this emergence of this real site of power in the nineteenth century in these SPCA's. In that, there's um, there's law enforcement. There's a set of new laws, uh, and um, so animal regulation becomes this site of power relationships uh, of one group imposing a will on another, to put it bluntly. Um, and whenever that happens, there, you know, <laughs> the, the differences and prejudices between people come, come out too. Um, there's discrimination between groups that, that happened in this process also. And so it's complicated. It's not to say that these animal regulations and animal protections were only about one group of people sort of in conflict with another. It's a little bit more complicated than that because there is, you know, there is genuine concern for this third party that's involved, which is the animals themselves. Um, but a lot of these regulations and interactions um, do contain these human to human group kind of um, stresses as well. Um, and so some of the examples that I, I talk about in the book um, include those rag pickers in New York those German immigrants um, who are really scraping by in this economy, who are making, um, you know, pennies a day and who are living in these big tenement, you know, these overcrowded tenement buildings um, in what's called rag pickers row at the time, which I think is the lower East side. Um, And, and, um, and the SPCA, you know, they're, they're, these rag pickers are, uh, you know, very low hanging fruit. They're an easy target. They don't have friends in Albany. They don't have friends um, in, in powerful places. And um, the SPCA moves through and pretty quickly um, you know, forces them to, uh, to give up their dogs, essentially. Um, and then in, um, in San Francisco, um, there's really interesting dynamics with, with Chinese immigration, Chinese immigrants in the city. Um, and this is where it gets really kind of complicated, I guess. Um, the, a lot, a number of SPCA activists, people who are involved in, in animal welfare, think that this is actually going to be a recipe for improving social relationships among people. And so when I went to look at the SPCA in San Francisco, I expected a lot of conflict with, um, Chinese immigrants, that this was essentially a white group that was um, going to be enforcing and imposing order and their will on, uh, on, Im- on this immigrant uh, racial minority. And there was some of that that I could see, but there was also, um, there were also a number of reformers who, who um, in this strange way, thought that 
if we can get kids to be kind to animals, that they'll be kind to other people, including Chinese immigrants. And so one of the things that, and so one of the things that you know, I read about in San Francisco is that a pretty common practice was for kids, usually described as boys, who threw rocks at dogs, at stray dogs, and who also threw rocks at um, Chinese uh, immigrants. Um, and so one of the one of these reformers is saying, "Hey, if we can stop this in one group, we can stop it in another. Let's start with the animals. Let's start with the animals and work out into cre- trying to create a more sort of um, kind society. Um, and kindness becomes this sort of really central concept in this ideology. Um, and so the SP- and the SPCA is complicated too because uh, I mentioned this in the book." It's a corporation. And actually, when it's making its way through Sacramento, there's a moment when legislators, who were thought of as sort of progressive legislators at the time, um, want to include Native Americans in in the new legal protections um, related to sort of bodily um, welfare. Uh, and, And at some point, that language gets stripped away. But it's part of this sort of what's thought of at the time as sort of this progressive movement um, that is trying to sort of reduce suffering across species in this weird way. But the fact that they would include Native Americans alongside animals um, is is then, you know, sort of troubling and and condescending and and prejudicial in its own way. But it's it's it really takes you into this 19th century world in, a, in, a, in an interesting way. Um, but then in terms of sort of the non-humane regulations that I talk about, um, in terms of regulating cows and dairies and, and hog farms, um, I also saw quite a bit of targeting of, of immigrant groups. Um, so in San Francisco, they re- the city really doesn't crack down on the pollution that ha- ends up happening in Butchertown. But what they do is they they crack down on the Chinese shrimpers who are farming shrimp right next to Butcher Town. They say you can't farm here because it's polluted. Um, so rather than take on the sort of the white sort of corporate um, entities that are actually doing the polluting, they sort of target the Chinese shrimpers and they also target the Italian dairy farmers um, who you know are sort of using this swampland near Butcher Town to graze dairy cows um, in this very sort of ramshackle, small-scale way. And they crack down on the, on the dairy, um, dairy industry there as well. Um, and so, you know, you, you see these social conflicts in a lot of different contexts that are um, very 19th century and, and somewhat, um, in some cases, surprising, some cases not. Yeah. And... Um... This is kind of related. Near near the end of the book, you um, you consider animal entertainments and and also people's reactions to those. Um, you you mentioned Charles Wilson Peale's uh, American Museum in Philadelphia, as well as P.T. Barnum's Curiosities and Hybrids, and all of this elucidates the spectrum of academic and popular interests in animals um, in, in urban areas. And um, while some sought to shock audiences, it seems others strove to cultivate humanity uh, through this methodological study of the natural world. Um, would you be able to expand on a few of these animal entertainments and perhaps discuss their cultural and intellectual impact? Yeah, um, I started. You know, I started this project sort of thinking about this this process of refinement or exclusion of certain animals. And at some point, I think I thought, well, there's actually, there's, there's sort of a larger ecosystem, if you will, that's changing. It's, it's a subtraction in urban life, and it's also an addition. And some of that addition was um, you know, the development of, of, of pets in homes. There's a huge culture of pets that's emerging in the 19th century. And it's related very much to the SPCA and, and the cultivation of kindness and, and in children in particular. And then there's also this massive emergence of animal spectacles, if you will. Um, animals as a form of entertainment. And one of the chapters, I sort of take this very long view of thinking about the ways in which people 
in New York in particular, were engaging with animals over time, over a long period of time of 70 or 80 years and, um, and, and using animals in, in interesting ways to sort of access certain ideals or certain parts of themselves. And as you said, it start, you know, the, actually the chapter actually starts with um, a boat full of living animals that, are, that is launched over Niagara Falls in 1827. Um, and um, that there, there uh, you know, um, there was at this time this sort of spectacle of, of um, you know, kind of grotesque or, um, you know, there, there wasn't the same kind of concern for, you know, the, the welfare of animals themselves. Um, that chapter also talks about, as you said, Charles Wilson Peel and the ways in which people are using animals to try to figure out their place in both, both a nationalistic kind of way and in the world, um, that Americans are looking to these megafauna um, and, and, um, and trying to stake some claim of, of greatness. Um, but the sort of real, the, the real tension in that chapter is about P.T. Barnum, and the development of his museum. And, and, and much of Barnum's museum actually grows out of Charles Wilson Peale's um, uh, museum. Uh, but Barnum takes it and sort of transforms it into something else. He's got all these stuffed specimens that he puts on display from, uh, from having purchased them from, from Peale's museum. Um, and, and Barnum actually does go through this, um, this process of refinement in his is an American museum too. Um, we don't tend to think of Barnum, I guess I didn't tend to think of Barnum as um, sort of a respectable type, um, but he really he really does try to sort of, you know, tidy up his museum a little bit. He is interested in drawing customers, and a lot of his customers have these sort of Victorian idea ideas. Um, they don't want their children to see the live feeding of the boa. Um, uh, the, of the snakes, um, and so this was this was one of Henry Berg's first targets was getting rid of the live snake feedings um, at Barnum's museum, and he's successful at it. He convinces Barnum um, essentially to to stop doing it. Now the feedings went on; um, they just didn't. They just happened out of sight of the visitors, um, and so Barnum does kind of refine his his museum to to make it more. Um, socially acceptable in its time period, um, and and Barnum's well, I won't go on and on about it, but um, uh, Barnum is an interesting character. He sort of walks a walks a line with the SPCA. The SPCA is always sort of watching out what he's doing, um, and he's always sort of you know going right up to the edge, sometimes crossing over it. Um, and sometimes even playing with the SPCA themselves. Um, and then in the last chapter, I talk about the development of zoos. So you know, zoos are also this very 19th century um, development, zoos as we know them now, these sort of um, large, in many cases, public institutions, publicly funded in, in some cases, um, that um, really do... Um, sort of collect animals from around the world and is sort of supposed to be this public display of, of, of what the world has to offer in terms of its animals. And so I look in particular at this zoo in San Francisco called Woodward's Gardens, which was a private zoo, but came at the beginning of this sort of public zoo making um, uh, phase. And, um, and, and looking at the ways in which that zoo emerged in this international network of animal trade and, capti and captivity. Um, that first generation of zoos, there's something like, you know, a hundred zoos in the United States that are established, major zoos that are established between um, 1850 and 1910. So this is like the golden age of, of zoo building. And to make those zoos required um, capturing wild animals and putting them in, in cages. And that was a really brutal process. You, you know, in many cases you'd capture, you know, for every you know, 30 or 50 animals you'd capture, you'd, you'd end up with two that would survive. Um, and often it was sort of the, the, the uh, those who were hunting these animals would try to get the young, the young animals um, to, to sort of 
raise in captivity. Um, and that's just, a, it's, it's quite a brutal process when you read about it. So in San Francisco, they're actually out on the Channel Islands capturing sea lions, seals, um, in, and lassoing them and getting them to shore, putting them in cages, putting them on railroad cars, and they're trading these uh, sea lions uh, around the world um, to Barnum, to Europe. Um, and so I look at that process and I look at the cleansing that goes on with that too that um, the, the visitors who went to the zoos had very little idea, I think, of what was actually going on behind the scenes to create these displays. Um, but by the time they were there to see it in those nice cages with the ponds, with the trees, with the um, sort of landscaping that was emerging in zoos at this time, um, it created this sort of passive, almost naturalistic recreation. Um, that was really sort of hiding this darker story of what was happening uh, behind the scenes. Yeah. Um, Professor Robichaud, uh, it was a true pleasure reading the book. And thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Um, may I ask if you intend to continue uh, researching animals in, in any future work? Yeah, I... Um, my next project, I don't know if there were, will be very many animals in it. Um, my next project is, is about ice, and it's about ice in the 19th century. Um, and I guess it's related to animals in that um, ice really, uh, ice ends up transforming what, human an, what, what the geographies of human-animal relationships can be um, with the refrigeration of meat. Um, that's part of this process of... Um, slaughterhouses and, uh, and, and other food production being moved away from consumers and from urban centers, especially. Um, and so there will be some, there will be some animals in it. Um, in particular, horses are really important in harvesting ice in the 1800s. Um, and, um, and, we're often actually on sort of on the front lines of their sacrifices too. There, there are so many stories of horses falling into, you know, winter ponds and, and struggling. Um, and so there will be some horses um, and there will be some meat, um, but I don't know if there are going to be many animals beyond that. <laughs> well, it sounds fascinating. I, I look very forward to, uh, to reading when it comes out. Um Thank you, Professor Robichaud. Uh, thank you to our listeners. This has been part of the Animal Studies podcast series on the New Books Network. Um, Dr. Robichaud's book is Animal City, The Domestication of America, and it will be listed on the podcast page. Thank you. Thank you.